from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Albert Lincoln on December 16, 2016. Al went to law school in the U.S., but almost immediately he moved outside the United States and never ended up practicing law here. He first went to Paris and then to Africa. He was then asked to serve at the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, Israel. Of his achievements there, one was to have the Baha'i holy places in Haifa and Akka placed on UNESCO's prestigious World Heritage List in 2008. Al explains how it is that the Baha'i holy places are located in Israel. I started the interview by asking Al where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there? Well, I grew up in New England. I was born into a Protestant Christian family, not very devout or practicing, but still within that milieu. I went to school and I had friends and roommates who were Jewish and Catholic and one Muslim. And I visited their places of worship with them and kind of came to the conclusion that they all, there was some a, a presence in all those places, that, but, not, but none of them had a monopoly. But there was really something there. I grew up really in the... Um, 50s and 60s, uh, which was a period of considerable social ferment in the United States, a time of a lot of idealism also. And I think I've really been marked by that all my life. If you were raised in a Protestant milieu, as you said, to what degree was church a part of your life? As far as the family goes, not very much. I can remember occasionally going to church, but very rarely. I think I was baptized, but it was really when I went away to boarding school and they had regular chapel services, I think that I had my first real contact with, with church. And it was a very sort of interdenominational, almost secular approach to, to church. Did you sort of bring that relationship with religion on into college and later in your adult life? As I got into college, even maybe perhaps at the end of, of high school, that the, the idealism that I picked up from the surroundings and the interest in broader questions was already gradually morphing into, into a search for spiritual solutions or spiritual opportunities, maybe. And that's why I attended worship services with my friends from other backgrounds. In college, I also attended Quaker meetings in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I was drawn to, to something without knowing exactly where, where it was or what it looked like. My intuitive sense was, was that there had to be an intelligence behind the creation. The different ways that the, the, the kind of it had been divided up were, very, were man-made not essential. At what point 
did you run into the Baha'i faith and how did that happen? I first heard about it very indirectly. A friend of mine who later became my wife was out in California and encountered the faith. And I, uh, one of our mutual friends said to me one day, have you heard uh, Joni got mixed up with some crazy religion in California? That was the first mention of the faith, even without its, of the Baha'i faith, even without its name. Given sort of my openness on the subject, I, I was curious and I asked her about it. She gave me some literature and directed me to a regular Baha'i meeting that was held just off the campus in Cambridge, which I started attending. And uh, about six months later, I had made up my mind and, and became a Baha'i. So what was your first reaction to what you heard first went to, let's say, an introductory meeting? The notion of progressive revelation, of a, an unknowable creator who speaks to creation through a succession of messengers seemed totally logical. I had no difficulty with that. Um, it just sort of confirmed what I kind of the conclusions I'd come to. The more difficult thing for me had, again, to do with the fact that this is the late 1960s and I'd been thinking in terms of social justice and social change, largely in political terms. And the Baha'i faith was saying, that's not, the right, that's not the way. It's not by getting involved in partisan or in movement, political movements of one kind or another, that society is going to change. It's, it's through culture, it's through values, it's through education. I was Im impressed by the diversity in the Baha'i meetings, but I wondered, were these, are these just nice people who enjoy each other's company? make a nice atmosphere, or do they really have the power? Or does this faith have the power to bring about the kind of change that's needed? And, and that took me some time to work through, because the questions I asked along those lines really didn't get very good answers. And it was um, finally some uh, African-American Baha'is in, in Chicago. I went to do some studies out there, I spent a semester out there in my senior year, who had had to deal with those issues because they had had people saying, what are you doing hanging out with Whitey at a time when there was a lot of tension and, and they were rioting and some parts of some of the cities were, were on fire. Mm -hmm. And so they had kind of worked through some of these issues and were able to show me how the Baha'i faith actually addressed it and what was the approach that was implicit in the Baha'i teachings. Really, in, over the long run, political action produces only superficial change. You change the people in power, you change the parties in power, but you don't, but you don't actually change the system most of the time. And what one has to do is get to the more basic level of how people think and their, their values and how they relate to each other. This is where change can come about. It's a, it's a slower process, but it's actually the only, the only process that takes you where you want to go. What's interesting is uh, one of the basic principles of the Baha'i faith is unity. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Baha'u'llah says that you need to be united first before you can create solutions. Partisan politics is sort of the reverse direction of that. You're creating this divide between what you object and the people that are doing something that's objectionable to you unless there's a conversation on, well, what's our goal between these two parties and what can we do to get toward that goal so each 
side is reaching a goal that they feel is worthy, that that's when a solution can occur. What's your perspective on that? Well, I think that's right. I, I think that everybody likes the idea of unity, but some people see it not as inclusive, but as a kind of an exclusive unity. We have to unify those who believe as we do, or those who have the same interests that we do, and then fight everybody else <laughs> uh, until until we win, and then maybe everybody else will give up, but then we'll have unity as, as a result of that conquest, uh, which largely seems illusory if one looks over, over history or even current events. It doesn't really work that way. So the Baha'i approach is exactly include everybody first and then figure out uh, what you're going to actually do based on on that inclusion and on, on listening to all the people that are involved. Yeah. And of course, that that in itself doesn't doesn't sound very workable unless you really believe that human beings have within them the natural tendency toward unity and towards common sense. That, that when you take down the barriers and you take away the competition and the, the divisiveness, that actually consensus is not that hard to not that hard to reach, and that it is a really practical building block. You may in the consensus may be kind of piece by piece. It may come as you go along, but you can if you can start where start where the consensus is and then build from there. It's, it's a very powerful model. So you became a Baha'i about six months after you started investigating it? Yeah, uh, uh, March 1967. You were in your formative years when that happened, a young adult. Did the becoming a Baha'i in any way change your perspective on what you wanted to do as a person in this world as a result? I, I think it changed it totally. The new path only became clear gradually. At that point, I think I had I had already decided to go to law school. I thought about changing that and going direct into some field of education, but I think I felt that I I had perhaps more of a talent in the in the field of law and to you to use that in a, in a constructive and positive way as opposed to being a total adversarial. Joni, my wife and I got got married about uh, a year after I became a Baha'i, when uh, I was already in law school. We fairly quickly decided that we would like to serve the faith in, in other countries. We'd like to have the experience of building the oneness of mankind uh, and actually sort of making a new society out uh, in the context of diversity, as soon as I finished my law school, I, I was lucky, fortunate to get a, a position with a, a law firm in in Paris, France, which was a start. After about a couple of years in France, we went on to Africa. I practiced law in the Central African Republic and in Cameroon and Ivory Coast over about 20, 20 years while participating also in the activities of the Baha'i communities in those countries. 
And then we were we were both invited to serve at the world headquarters of the Baha'i Faith in Haifa, Israel, in uh, 1993, and ended up spending 20 years at that, returning to the United States to live in nine, in 2013, roughly roughly 43 years after we left. So I don't think any of that would have happened had it not been for the Baha'i Faith. You had gone to, as you said, three African countries in your career. And I'm just wondering what were the circumstances that you went to three African countries in that period of time? And what kind of law were you practicing in those countries? We went from Paris, where uh, I was working on this law firm on the Champs-Élysées, directly to Bangui, the capital of the Central African Republic, which was a big change. The Central African Republic is a, a landlocked country, one of the world's poorest. Uh, it's had a lot of political strife, particularly in, in, in recent years. Well, it was fascinating. Uh, we went there without any, uh, any employment arranged in advance because there wasn't any. So it was largely based on the savings, our savings from the uh, the job with the law firm. After getting there, I first was able to, after some months, arrange a uh, Fulbright teaching position at a newly opened university there, and uh, that was largely because they they needed teaching staff and didn't have any funding for it. So I went to the embassy and said, well. I can you know, allow you to check another box in the Fulbrights uh, without any moving expenses <laughs> and ended up teaching labor law and English for economic students and something else, I think. And that was kind of a, a start. Then there were some uh, American companies that came to invest in the country and I was able to give them some advice and sort of help them work through the administrative procedures. And then um, I actually applied to be admitted to the the local bar. And that, that was an unusual situation because there were only six lawyers in the country and they were all French colonials. The law said you had to be either French or Central African, but there weren't any Central Africans who at that point qualified. So the government actually waived the nationality condition for me, I believe, in the hopes that it, that would make it easier for the first uh, indigenous people coming back with with degrees to, to kind of break into this club. And that's actually how it worked. About six months um, after I was admitted, the first Central African came back from Paris with the appropriate diplomas and uh, went around to visit each of the Frenchmen to see if they'd take him in to clerk and learn. And they all found reasons to say no. And I finally came around to me and I said, well, I, I can't really teach you anything, but I'm willing to share the office and, le and learn together. That's what we did. Uh, but it was it was fascinating. And I was arguing cases in a long black robe and no wig because we're talking about um, tropical climate. So I'm very, very hot. I had actually managed to learn the, the local language um, partly through traveling and visiting the Baha'i communities up in the in the country. So I, w I was actually probably the first lawyer in that country able to argue a case in uh, 
in Sango, which was the national national language. It was rather useful skill because a lot of the jury members didn't didn't really speak French. Most of the proceedings were in French, perhaps because the, the lawyers were French. But uh, to be able to actually argue to the jury in a language they understood was useful. <laughs> and that was just fascinating. I mean, it, it gave such a an insight into the society and where it was at. I, I still remember one of my first cases where I was sort of court-appointed, fell on the sessions of the court a couple of times a year, and then and the lawyers would be appointed to defend the accused. My client had hit his wife who fell over and knocked her head on a stone and died. The circumstances were such that the court considered it a capital offense and, and condemned him to death. But the family of the wife were not satisfied and tried to lynch him on the way out of the court. I, as I thought about that, I thought about sort of when does a society sort of give up the right to vengeance and transfer that right to the institutions? And of course, it depends both on understanding, I mean, a certain level of understanding of what the institutions are and how they work, but it also involves trusting them to actually do it. In this case, I, don't, I think there was probably neither the understanding nor the trust. So they still felt they needed to take things into their own hands. They didn't succeed in doing him in. The, the, <laughs> the officials uh, intervened and saved him and took him off. But with more experience, I could have realized also that the actual sentence pronounced by the court often was not relevant. The real question was whether a condemned person would die of disease in the prison before being freed in an amnesty. Um, but there was another time, uh, Warren, when actually it was after a regime change, and the this, the country decided, I think, very admirably to process all the cases through the normal court system. And not only that, to broadcast live all the proceedings which is a remarkable uh, educational experience for the population, providing exactly that sort of understanding of institutional justice that was lacking. It, it, it was an extraordinary situation because people for months on end were walk, sort of walking around town with a, in a transistor radio glued to their ears. Whereas the regime change had left the society very divided, partly along tribal or ethnic lines based on who'd been charged, who replaced and so on. The result of these trials was actually to kind of calm things down and the supporters of the ousted president realized that he'd done some pretty terrible things and the adversaries or the supporters of the newcomers said, well, he, that's, you know, we, we knew he did, but it turns out he wasn't the only one. It, it just ended in a in a much, um, what shall I say, broader and more, most compassionate and understanding view on the part of the population, as well as an understanding of how the how the court system is supposed to work. So, how long were you in uh, the Central African Republic? We were uh, almost eleven years in the Central African Republic, and then uh, moved on to Cameroon, which is just to the to the west. Why was that? Well, there were a number of reasons. Our kids had been educated in the lo local, local French, or, or a local French 
supported school. Also, there were more political changes and, and difficulties, and, and some of them you know, made my position as, as a lawyer un, untenable. Can you explain that a little bit? You know, after that period when the of, of relative openness, when the trials were all made publicly and so on, things were kind of clamped down again, and there was still an expectation, you know, that dissidents could be defended in the in the courts, uh, and yet, you know, there was more political interference in those things, and it just it just uh, became very very difficult. I was offered a position in Douala in, in Cameroon, working with a uh, Cameroonian firm that was affiliated with one of the international uh, accounting firms. And they needed somebody to work on tax and corporate work. And so uh, I did that. That There was another change. I ended up actually creating my own office and then becoming part of the Price Waterhouse Group. A lot of the practice was largely involving uh, with commercial firms, very often international or British American firms that needed help understanding both the local law and uh, the culture that surrounded it. Cameroon is, like the Central African Republic, basically um, functions on the basis of inherited French law applied during the colonial period plus uh, legislation after independence. So the law is fairly similar between Central African Republic and Cameroon? Yes, quite. There's a significant difference between the, you know, the British and American law is called common law, and most of continental European law is civil law. And those two systems have different vocabularies and different conceptual structures, even when the results of any given case might be quite similar, but they're arrived at in a different, in a different way, with a different logic. And so a lot of what I ended up doing was kind of, I, I call it practicing comparative law in the sense of thinking about what was happening within the Franco-African context and then how that can be explained in terms that are understandable to someone who was trained in the um, American or British system. I'm just thinking about that, Al. I don't know how soon after law school you went to Paris. Your working law career was pretty much in a different law framework than what you were trained in. That, that's correct. Uh, I was fortunate to go to sort of a to a one of the law schools is considered a, a national school in the sense that they don't don't teach the particular the law of a particular jurisdiction or state, but rather the skills you need to learn the law. So that was very helpful to me because I essentially spent much of my career learning new law that I hadn't I hadn't learned in law school. I'd only learned really all I brought to that was the skills and the the, the analytic capacities and, and not the actual knowledge of the law. I, I, I never never actually practiced in the United States. I took the uh, bar exam in the District of Columbia right after graduating from law school and then uh, took the plane for Europe. How long were you in Cameroon? We were six years in Cameroon. Then uh, we moved west again to the Ivory Coast. 
what was the reason for moving again? Well, one, once again, I actually been, I was offered a job in Abidjan. There was a an American law firm that had had offices in Kinshasa and then opened an office in Abidjan. They knew the nature of the um, the work I was doing in Cameroon. In fact, we, we'd worked together on a couple of projects and offered me a, essentially a partnership in the Abidjan office. The situations in Cameroon and Ivory Coast were professionally quite different in that there was a well-developed local bar of Cameroonian and Ivorian lawyers, but the monopoly of the bar was going to court. So one could be a conseil juridique or legal advisor without being licensed by the courts. And so that's how I was able to continue practicing, not going to court, but writing agreements and uh, advising clients. Some international institutions like the International Finance Corporation, which is the private lending arm of the World Bank, Commonwealth Development Corporation from the UK, embassies and so on, along with, uh, with commercial clients. So the law that you practiced in the Central African Republic and the law you practiced in Cameroon and in the Ivory Coast was very different then. In other words, the African Central Republic was very different from the other two. uh, Not the law, but the nature of the practice, yes. I I meant the practice, right? Yeah. 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 In Central African Republic, I was, was, you know, really not specialized because when you have only, you know, a handful of lawyers in the country, everybody needs to do everything. I did traffic accidents and criminal labor law and a little bit of everything. But then, yes, uh, in Cameroon and Ivory Coast, it was a much more of a international and corporate commercial practice. And I also did a good deal of traveling into other African countries. So it was really, in many ways, extended to, uh, well, mostly the French-speaking, former French colonies, but also some of the... Um, former British colonies like Ghana and Nigeria. So in your bio, you said that your areas of practice included human rights and natural resources. Was that in the the Central African Republic or was that in all three or where did you practice in those two areas? The natural resources, there's a petroleum company in Cameroon and both petroleum and mining in Ivory Coast and and surrounding countries. The human rights, well, it was both the Central African Republic in terms of particular cases. Uh, I had had an opportunity to defend the Jehovah's Witnesses when they were arrested for practicing their faith in the Central African Republic. I also advised Baha'i communities, and I was asked by the uh, international Baha'i administration to intervene in, in some of the other countries there was where there was a threat to uh, ban the Baha'i faith, or in, in one case where it had been banned, and, and uh, we were making an effort to get that ban removed. Can you elaborate on the uh, Jehovah's Witness case? It was, again, a, an interesting example of the system, the justice system working. The Jehovah's Witness had been banned by a, a decree in the Central African Republic, but the decree, in a formal sense, dissolved their organization. These people had been arrested 
holding a prayer meeting. I just happened to be in court when they were brought in and offered sort of pro bono my services. Essentially, I argued successfully that holding a prayer gathering was something different from being an organization, that the organization could be disbanded, but that people's right to gather and pray was a different matter, and that, that the banning of the organization did not, did not render the prayer meeting itself a criminal offense. And, and what is, I think, remarkable is that, you know, the, despite the fact that clearly the intent of the government in banning the Jehovah's Witnesses was to uh, stop their activities, the magistrate presiding in the case uh, uh, acquitted them. So what was the issue that the government was in particularly had animosity toward Jehovah's Witness uh, religion versus any other Christian organization? Well, in a number of cases, they were banned because they were perceived as being anti-patriotic. But I actually, after that case, was got came quite close to some of the local missionaries and had had some long chats. We were we were quite good friends. You said you sort of were trying to help the Baha'is in areas where the Baha'i faith was banned. Which countries would that be at that time? This, of course, is decades ago. This involved the small Congo with its capital in Brazzaville, Guinea and Conakry, and Gabon. And the um, issue was often that the Catholic Church and perhaps some of the other more well-established denominations were trying to fend off what they perceived as sects and cults and, and so on, and notably by sort of trying to enlist the government to, to ban them using stories about people being kidnapped or bewitched or whatever. In the Congo, the Baha'i faith had been banned by a communist regime, basically on communist ideology, and I uh, was successful in getting uh, some years later in getting that ban rescinded and, and the Baha'i faith recognized again. In, in Gabon, it was a question of essentially making representations uh, and clarifying misunderstandings that uh, the Baha'i faith is not a, a sect or a cult and doesn't kidnap people or bewitch them. In Guinea, it was a little more complex because it's a, it is a country with a large and fairly influential uh, Muslim population. And I think there, there had been some efforts again you know, basically, as in the as in the other countries, kind of competitive tactics, but a combination of clarification and also demonstrating that uh, you know we are a recognized religion around the world with representation in the United Nations, and you know are able to you know there are people who will who will speak for us. Uh, Manage to. In, in those cases also, to ward off the measures that were being considered. So how long were you in the Ivory Coast? We were five years in the Ivory Coast. What was your next move, and why did you make that move? In 1993, we were invited to serve at 
the world headquarters of the Baha'i Faith in Haifa, Israel. We both had the opportunity to do some very interesting things. My wife was serving in an institution that dealt largely with the Baha'i communities around the world, and she did a lot of traveling there. And I was um, in the external affairs and, and largely relationships with the authorities in the host country of Israel. Mm-hmm. So we, had, we were working in very different spheres, but well, it was a very interesting period, both internationally and, and in terms of Israel. We arrived sort of on the heels of the Oslo Accords when uh, people were very optimistic about the chances for peace in the Middle East. And we watched and were really part of the scene as, as it moved on through the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin and the subsequent intifadas and um, the falling apart of the, of the Oslo process. Right up till 2013, when we when we left, was it then that you were Secretary General of the Baha'i International Community? Yes, that was my that was my title. Can you explain what the Baha'i International Community, what that institution is? Yes, let me let me go to broaden the scope a little bit to give it some context. Sure. The World Center of the Baha'i Faith is located in Israel because. Its founder, Baha'u'llah, was banished there from Iran at a time when that part of the world was, was, was under the Ottoman Empire, was therefore under Muslim rule. Baha'u'llah was exiled to Akka, which is right next to, uh, to Haifa, and uh, passed the last 24 years of his life there, died and is, is buried there, so that one of the most important shrines of the Baha'i Faith is located there. Uh, in in Baha'u'llah's writings, aside from appointing some immediate successors, he also established the institutions that would govern the worldwide Baha'i community. And those institutions were, and it was also made clear, were to be established and function in the Holy Land, uh, specifically uh, on the slopes of Mount Carmel in, in Haifa. So the highest uh, institution in the Baha'i Faith is an elected body of nine members, elected every five years, that has its seat on Mount Carmel in in the city of Haifa. The uh, position of Secretary General is the um, senior external representative, sort of Minister of Foreign Affairs, if you will, and the the Secretary General is the Secretary General of the Baha'i International Community, which is just another term using, representing the fact that he's uh, not only representing the governing institution, but the entire community that that institution represents. So I, I had the responsibility for dealing with the Israeli government authorities uh, from the highest level right down to some of the municipal authorities that we had to deal with for building permits and zoning issues and licensing and all sorts of things like that. Now, one of your accomplishments, Al, was getting the Baha'i Holy Places placed on UNESCO's prestigious World Heritage List, I guess in 2008, was it? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So can you give us the backstory on how that happened? 
Well, it was a relatively long process that culminated in 2008, but began, I think, 2001 or two. And initially, we were approached by the Israel Israeli authorities in charge. And, and Israel had then only recently, I think in uh, 1999, signed the World Heritage Convention uh, and was putting together a list of the sites within the country that they wanted to propose. To their credit, they, they, they wanted that site to reflect the diversity of cultural heritage of the, of the country. And therefore approached the Baha'i saying, you know, we know this, these things are important to you and have a background. You know, would you be interested in having them put forward for listing with World Heritage Organization? The World Heritage Convention is an agreement among nations. Only the country that has jurisdiction over a particular site can propose it. So after giving it some thought, we were we were in favor of the idea and it proceeded. We, of course, prepared a lot of the documentation and involves quite a lot of work. And then it inched along through a process, first of sort of review within the country and then a uh, review by the World Heritage Center of UNESCO, and then finally presentation to the World Heritage Committee, which is a, a body of 21, I think it's 21 countries and our national delegations that meets once a year and, and um, approves the nominations. Unanimously? Often, most of the decisions are by consensus. Mm -hmm which doesn't mean that everybody is enthusiastic, but it does mean that no one's objecting. Mm -hmm. If two countries request it, there has to be a roll call vote, or rather a secret ballot. And uh, if there's a secret ballot, it requires a two-thirds majority to approve a, a listing. Mm -hmm. And was there consensus amongst the committee for this request? Well, it was a little more complicated than that. Uh, the first year that it was brought up, uh, there was a very lively discussion. Uh, somewhat to our surprise, Europe and North America were skeptical about it. Huh. There, there were complicated reasons about an, uh, kind of an ongoing argument between the, the West and the, and the Third World. And the Third World was supporting the Baha'i nomination largely because they knew they had by communities in their own countries so india and kenya and a number of other countries were supporting and the europeans were all nervous about well if we approve this does this mean we have to approve a site for the scientologists and the mormons and the this and that and um you know kind of cold feet about the whole thing some sort of a compromise was reached to postpone a decision to require some more documentation and postpone a decision for a year. And when it came back, that was 2007, and it came back in 2008 after the documentation had been provided and the, and the Western countries were basically satisfied, then uh, we had some quite uh, outspoken opposition from Muslim countries number of them spoke against it. Only one country asked for a secret ballot, and that was not seconded. So after some long discussion, it was approved by consensus. 
And I have to say, the reason I had asked earlier if any of those African countries were Muslim who had banned the Baha'i faith, and, and in this case, uh, maybe you can explain why I would ask the question of, you know, what's the relationship between the Baha'i faith and Islam, and why would certain Islamic-based countries have an, uh, an issue with the Baha'i faith? Yeah, well, it really is not that often an issue in the African countries, even those with majority Muslim populations. The problem to which you're alluding is essentially with Iran, but also to a lesser extent to some of the Sunni Muslim countries like Egypt. But there are relatively large Baha'i populations in Indonesia and Malaysia. And, and the problems are in the, those countries are sort of occasional when some of the more fundamentalist groups sort of make an issue of it. Most of those countries, the Baha'is are relatively low profile and um, manage to continue and, and even even prosper. Uh, but the, essentially, I think to address the issue you're raising, one has to look at the country where the Baha'i faith was born and where it first spread and appealed to, to large numbers. And that, that is Iran, which is um, not only a Muslim country, but a country where the dominant strain of, of Islam is, is Shia. Fundamentally, the problem is that they were expecting a messianic figure in the mid-19th century. And the forerunner of Baha'u'llah essentially claimed to fulfill those messianic expectations. And his claim was accepted by tens and hundreds of thousands of people to the point that the um, clergy felt really threatened. They, they felt they were going to lose their influence and, and, their, and their flocks and reacted violently and, and organized with the support of, of the government, the Iranian authorities, a very strong repression and persecution, uh, which among other things resulted in the exile of, of Baha'u'llah resulted in the, the execution of, of his forerunner, the Bab, and uh, the martyrdom of some, some several tens of thousands of, of believers. Baha'u'llah was imprisoned and then, and then exiled first to Baghdad and then to Istanbul and Adirne and finally to what was then Ottoman, Ottoman Palestine. Uh, interestingly enough, part of our understanding of the divine plan and the succession of messengers includes uh, actually recognizing uh, Muhammad as a messenger of God and Islam as a true religion in its, in its essence. And, and uh, of course, that doesn't mean that everything done in the name of Islam is correct any more than um, is the case with Christianity. I mean, if you look at the uh, the Holocaust and the, uh, the Spanish Inquisition and a few other things there. Historically, a, a great many very bad things have been done in the name of religion, but that doesn't mean that, that the religions themselves are at fault. It just means that we human beings often misuse or misinterpret things and that we, some, some weaknesses that lead us into fanaticism and cruelty and 
prejudice of many kinds. You left Israel in 2013, and you're now, quote-unquote, retired in the United States, is it? I guess that's as good a description, though we've, <laughs> we've been pretty... <laughs> Uh, we've been more tired than retired. <laughs> uh, we've been moving around a lot. We've had quite a few invitations to speak or give courses, um, both at Baha'i events, but also um, in, in others. I've been been able to to speak to quite a quite a number of Jewish groups about the the Baha'i faith in Israel and how it is that the the world center of the Baha'i faith is in in Israel. I was able to also give a talk at the uh, Chautauqua Institution in uh, in Western New York about the Baha'i's view of the situation in the Middle East. Also been been asked to sort of do some consulting for Baha'i institutions in Chile and Democratic Republic of Congo and had a little look at the possibility of some other Baha'i sites being listed on the World Heritage List. So... Life is not dull. So you mentioned that you received an invitation to speak on the Baha'i viewpoint on the Middle East. I'm wondering if you could just give us, you know, 10,000 foot level, if you can, on, on what that might be. Yeah. Well, as mentioned earlier, Baha'is do not take sides in political matters and, and the most of what's Tying the, the Middle East in knots is, is very divisive political matters on which I will not, therefore, not comment. But fundamentally, I think that what the Baha'i Faith has to say and what the Baha'i World Center actually represents in nonverbal as well as verbal terms is the idea that difference is need not be a cause of division that if we as human beings can learn to look at people who are, to see people who are different than we are, or who think differently, or look differently, whatever it is, as a resource, as something that we can learn from, you know, there, there is a basic human inclination to think that we're safer with people who are, li- who are like us, and to be afraid of people who are different. And if we can overcome that, and... Thing, and and Baha'u'llah helps us with a, with a very beautiful image. He says that a garden of flowers, if all the flowers were the same size and the same shape and the same color, it would be boring. Uh, it's because of its diversity that a garden is beautiful. He says the same about a symphony. It's precisely because of all, all the different notes and the different instruments that you have the beauty. And, and if we look at society in the same way and realize that all of these different cultures and mindsets and sizes and shapes and colors and so on add to the, the value of that society. And, and, and we should be going toward people who are different to learn from them instead of being afraid of them and thinking that we have to build walls and fences and barriers of other kinds. Fundamentally, that is where we can see progress and where things can start to get better as you as you said earlier in the interview it's fundamentally the question of unity and to achieve that we we need to understand that it's about our belonging to the human race is what unifies us and um, not just on the basis of political opinion or skin color or something like that so al thank you so much for sharing your time to talk with me today 
Thank you, Warren. It's a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Albert Lincoln, lawyer by trade but served in many capacities while in Africa and in Israel. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Cause it's so often To want this world to mend To walk in hope to the end And see each man a friend Come down And walk these roads around The cities of Iran Which boast so much to
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.